Welcome to New Books in African American Studies. My name is Adam McNeil, host of the channel. Today I'm interviewing Kay Wright Lewis, Assistant Professor of History at Howard University. And we are interviewing her today for her recently published 2017 book by the University of Georgia Press, A Curse Upon the Nation, Race, Freedom, and Extermination in America and the Atlantic World. Welcome to the channel, Dr. Kay Wright-Lewis. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, yes. And uh, thank you for the great scholarship that you have put together with your book here, A Curse Upon the Nation. And, um, and it's definitely why I'm excited to have you on the channel today. Oh, that's so kind of you. Thank you so much. A lot, lot, of, it, lot of years and a lot of uh, hard labor, but a labor of love. Very much so. So, so let's start. To, to unravel where that labor of love comes from. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. Um, well, I was born in York, Pennsylvania, but uh, moved to Washington, D.C. when I was um, about eight years, eight years old. And um, my family was such that I didn't know anything um, about all the racial struggles as many Black parents uh, raise their children to just be thinking of themselves as good as anybody else and, and race is not a factor. And so that's how I grew up sort of unencumbered. And I think that informs my scholarship, which is why, you know, sort of starting my story there. I went to Sarah Lawrence um, College and I was doing my senior thesis uh, there, uh, which was on uh, the rhetoric of violence used by black abolitionists. And of course, I only had a year to do it and I didn't really sort of get to a, a conclusion uh, that I was satisfied with, um, other than clearly they didn't act upon the call for violence, um, but it was certainly there uh, in the discourse. So fast forward, then I go to graduate school um, and I'm in a, at Rutgers University in New Brunswick, and I'm in a course with Dr. Deborah Gray White, um, a seminar course, and I'm doing, you know, the first is the first semester, first paper. And so I'm sort of continuing this black abolitionist, you know, sort of train of thought. And I'm looking at Martin R. Delaney um, and uh, considered the father of black nationalism by many. And he's calling it during the Reconstruction era. And he's talking to Douglas and others. And he's saying, you know, if we don't figure out how to get along, you know, there's going to be a race war and then it'll uh, culminate in black extermination. And she says this about two or three times. So that's like really odd to me. And I'm trying to understand where, you know, why is he using this phrase so openly? And why, why is he saying it more than just once? Um, and so I pitched the idea to Dr. White, who then becomes my advisor about looking at this rhetoric of extermination. And I'm really thinking about it being in the 19th century in the antebellum era and pitching that and pitch the idea of looking at that and tracing, trying to figure out where it is, uh, where it comes from and, you know, why is he saying that? And so uh, as all good historians do, uh, it keeps bringing me, the, the evidence keeps bringing me further and further back uh, to the colonial period where I find that it's just all over the place in the Atlantic world and that people are using it. And again, trying to figure out why, um, why are they using it? Why, why are these ideas circulating? So that's really how uh, the, the project 
you know, sort of evolves. But it also, and, and this is the way circumstances, you know, because I came from a, a background, a family background where, you know, I believed in Martin Luther King's um, ethos that, you know, one should be judged by the content of their character. And so I'm trying to understand in, in another course during the Jim Crow era, you know, why people were lynching people, why there are a thousand people looking at people being lynched and tortured and burned and mutilated. And how is that possible that you could look at that and not be perturbed by it, uh, how you could be okay with it? Um, and I was very troubled by that, trying to understand how people can be sort of immunized from the trauma of seeing violence. And so that sort of segues into um, the way in which the book starts, starts which um, is, you know, in this early uh, 20th century with Mary Turner, you know, and sort of as a marker of, you know, it doesn't begin here. It doesn't begin in this post-Jim Crow era, uh, but it's certainly there and the ideas are there. And then I work my way uh, backwards. So um, for me, the project hopefully uh, would create, was written to create dialogue. Hopefully it would be accessible to, you know, all people and not just academics. You know, that was my uh, goal in any case. And um, so that, you know, it would sort of create and foster racial understanding and healing and, you know, a, a new paradigm shift in the way in which we function as Americans. And those are very, very lofty goals, which I think begin, <laughs> they, they begin at, if, if at the very least, a, a great discussion, um, really about how this concept of a really race war has permeated our society. Um, because I, I've heard, really, I didn't think about it until recently, but when I think about how, you know, the concept of race war is such that when I'm a kid growing up, oh, you know, you know, going to exterminate this and this. Typically, you think of an exterminator being like something for like like bugs, you know, or, or lice. But then again, maybe that's also important in how you start the book, too with your first actual chapter. Yeah, the nits makes lice, right. Well, I mean, you have to have some disregard for humanity, for a person's humanity, um, in order to uh, kill out, basically kill them, maybe even torture them, but just kill kill them for, for no reason, basically. Um, and, you know, we know within our judicial system that people are, in America anyway, are killed for crimes, right? Um, but, you know, in general, we do not as a nation accept people being killed just for no reason, um, except that the black experience has been that people have been killed for no reason, right? That has been our lived experience. Um, and so the point of talking, starting in sort of the Irish wars in England and the way in which um, the Irish people, you know, are um, basically uh, suffering from exterminatory warfare, meaning women and children, you know, are also killed as non-combatants. Um, you know, those same people that are fighting over in Ireland are then those first explorers that come into Jamestown and, and to South Carolina. And so those those ideas travel with them, right? Um, and, and those ways of interacting with uh, people, how how you other people, so the Irish are othered because they're uh, they are Catholic because they don't uh, submit to the will of 
of the the queen and king at, at various times. So I think, you know, the way in which we rationalize violence um, starts with ideas that are then perpetuated, and then there's justification that surrounds and wraps that up with a nice tidy bow, and then you get people to buy in wholesale that what you're selling is true, uh, and then they become okay with um, perhaps uh, enacting uh, some of these terrible crimes, um, as some of the philosophers call them. So, you know, the thing is, is that. In many of the current atrocities, whether you're talking about Rwanda, the genocide, you can see it coming. It's not like suddenly it just appears. You can see it by the way in which the mounting discourse of othering other people or marginalizing other people makes them ultimately the victims for random acts of violence and killing. Um, and so part of this book is to also suggest that you know we, sh- we should be more, as hard as it is to read perhaps, that we need to be more aware of the way in which some of these things operate. And, and in historical, from a historical perspective, it operates very much in the same way, is that you identify someone, you, you say that they're barbaric or you say they're not like you, you figure out the ways in which you can describe them as such, and then by marginalizing or othering them, then that enables for you to um, commit crimes of violence against them, uh, to treat them in, in a dis inhumane way. Um, and so we need to be careful and to understand that uh, the, these phrases and, and the rhetoric and the ideas that surround that behavior start way before the behavior actually begins. So to start at the, the point of contact um, in America um, with the people who have been using those ideas in Ireland, you know, is very salient for trying to make the point um, that when you do that, right, that you never are totally comfortable because you know that you are creating and making this up, right? <laughs> so if you can do it, so can someone else. And so there's a, a certain amount of fear that those colonists um, have um, in coming to America, whether it's enslaving Native American um, um, making it Native Americans uh, enslave people or the then subsequent African slaves um, to show that continuity that those people who are either con- uh, conquered or enslaved, you know, the same rationale is used against them, which is that they're not like us, they're not Christian, uh, that they're savages, that they're barbarian. Uh, and so if they're slaughtered, it's okay. And then of course, when Africans uh, come imported, the same is true for them, only it's used to justify why this intense level of violence uh, needs to be used to sustain the institution of slavery. Because I, I know, as an enslaver, that those people potentially know that what I'm doing uh, to them is inhumane, is wrong, and that they are un- unfairly being abused. Um, and so that makes me, that creates a fear and sort of a, a bubble of uh, of tension that I try to tease out um, in that earlier colonial period. Mm, yeah, and that's and and that's a history that a lot of people are really unaware of. And I will have to say that I was unaware too um, about this particular history. You know, you know about the subjugation of like the Irish and stuff like that too. But um, in the particular way that you articulate it. Um, 
was very new for me. Um, and for those who will read this particular book, A Curse Upon the Nation, I definitely think that that will potentially be a, 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 a thread that really moves people, um, especially in how you go from, you know, the British Isles and then over to the United States or what became the United States later on with the, uh, with the, with the colonies. Right. Well, you know, there's such a, um, I guess the, the important thing along with that is uh, we talk about at least probably, at least in the 80s and 90s, the early uh, 21st century about the need to, to articulate black agency, right? And so how does that manifest itself? Well, it manifests it in general um, with people resisting their enslavement and rebelling and, and that sort of thing. Um, and But because there's not as much of that as many people would perhaps like, or at least successful ones, it makes for, at least for my students that I've taught, this sense that, well, they they just were too too uh, oppressed, you know, that they didn't um, they didn't really know how to get out of enslavement, and that they they were so caught up not just mind, not just body, but also mind, that there was nothing that they could do, and that's just patently untrue, right? I mean, the thing is, is that they are always strategically thinking, uh, and if you go into the archive, especially for example in Virginia, you know, you find that they're constantly thinking that there are some. Um, slave rebellions uh, being plotted out. And I would say that it's not just paranoia, that it probably is more true than not. Um, the question is, though, I mean, when you look at these uh, people who um, first generation of Africans who've come, who have been carted over across the Atlantic to America, a lot of them have military training, you know, and certainly John Thornton has, has brought, and others have talked about this um, but the thing is, is that the way in which that the white Europeans understanding about the fact that they have this Europe, this uh, military training is what's so significant because it informs then the way in which they approach enslavement, the way in which they are fearful of their slave population um, and have concerns about this numerical imbalance that occurs you know, pretty quickly, uh, particularly in places like South Carolina and, or the Carolinas and North Carolina. Um, and then, of course, in, uh, down in the Deep South later on, you know, that there is never, uh, there's never a sense of what's called the Sambo thesis within the, um, the European mind. Not really. Because you can't be a Sambo if I'm constantly worried that you might kill me in my sleep, right? <laughs> so I laugh, but, it, you know, that's the truth of it. And so I'm strategic. I may not be literate, but I'm strategic. So this is an intellectual history of um, of of the people who are involved. So there are Europeans, there are Native people, and there are African people. But in particular, this is the intellectual history um, of enslaved people, and I want to push people to sort of look harder at ways in which the ways in which we can sort of get at that, because I don't necessarily have to have written it down um, to make it a viable uh, text for interrogation, um, and I can get it in sort of a what is a call or uh, as uh, Professor Nancy Hewitt called a kaleidoscope 
you know, where you are just looking every, at everything from all different angles. So when I first did this project, people would say, what kind of history is this? Is this an African-American history? I and mean, what kind of history are you doing? You know, <laughs> and uh, I said, I'm just doing the story. I don't know what you're talking about. And because for me, if you're in the room, then I'm going to include what you're, as best I can, you know, what you're doing and thinking and saying. Uh, but what that also does, especially when you have people that have maybe not uh, left as much written text, is that if you have an oral testimony of something, and then you have perhaps the written text of a European who is uh, can write, and they say the same thing, well, okay. Now, to me, that's evidence. Um, and so that that is part of the methodology that I that I used throughout the book. I, I did not want and did have a lot of pushback. The number one pushback was, well, why would slave owners kill their slaves? They're an investment. They have value to them. And that's very true. And in the main, they do not want to do that. But if, you, if I think you're going to kill me, or if I think that you're going to foment unrest amongst the rest of the enslaved population, I am going to kill you and because I'll just buy another one, right? I mean, you are no longer the type of enslaved person that I need in my, in, you know, in my, uh, on my plantation or on my farm. So, you know, you give too much credit to, I would say people give too much credit uh, to uh, slave, the slave holding uh, body that they have, that this is a, such a logical institution. It's, it's not a logical institution, it's an illogical institution. Number one, why would you have people who you're afraid are going to kill you <laughs> around you at all times? That, is, that doesn't make sense to most people. And, uh, but of course, greed uh, and incredible wealth is what drives that. But it also uh, creates uh, unmitigated violence against black people that they have to be very politically savvy uh, to deal with and navigate around um, in order to survive. Yeah, and, and that you make a great point about, um, about money. Excuse me, and I definitely when when I give talks on uh, on the history here in Boston, on the Black Heritage Trail, and other places, one thing that I always tell people: just follow the money. Maybe not just follow money, you know, do more, but that the, that investment that people make into human property or that they made into human property um, is important because that will really let you know you know, about the fact that if you buy something, then there's also a potential to sell it and or do something else with it. Because at the end of the day, at least to the owner, quote unquote, uh, that's their that's their property. And they they will do with it as they like, unfortunately. Um, and so definitely the history that you tell in this book is um, is one that you know, as you talk about with, especially with the Atlantic world, that's, that's an important part because you talk about different areas of history, whether with the uh, Haitian revolution or with um, uh, uh, different rebellions like the Bacon's rebellion and such like that. All of them are really important to let us understand about how um, uh, uh, revolt and, um, and revolution and all these different aspects are pushing into your history that pushes it up to really the 19th century as well. Right. Right. Which is really where, right, this project started from is the 19th century. But um, I had a very wise professor, Paul Clemens, at um, 
Rutgers University who said, you know, anybody who's doing 19th century, and this will go for anybody who's doing 20th century, needs to look back, needs to look back a century, <laughs> right? And see what's there because, you know, nothing is uh, new under the sun. And that is sort of informed also um, the kind of secondary uh, monographs that I used, um, looked at as well in that, you know, some of those historians um, in the 40s and 50s, you know, were pointing to some of this stuff. And so what I find is often the case for young scholars as we, and I do this too, I, I offer the newest, freshest books, right, um, that are hot off the press that, are, you know, have a, what we say, a lot of cheese and, you know, have the graduate students tear them apart, right? Or, you know, at least interrogate them deeply because this is, you know, the, the mental act, gymnastics that we're, you know, asked to do as scholars. And so it's a training for that. But at the same time, there are a lot of older scholars who have traversed a lot of this stuff that younger scholars think they're just discovering, right? Um, and so I know it seems unreasonable, but if you, in your sort of dissertation or research project, I believe it's really important to go back as far as you can um, to sort of see uh, what other, if other historians have talked about the topic that you're trying to interrogate, and you will find that that they have, you know, in some in some circumstances. So, um, you know, it, it's it's just part of the process, if you will, to sort of get the full body of literature. Uh, that, you know, that you're trying to investigate. And so in this case, you know, people would say, well, you know, you're referencing older historians. Well, that's just because they're the first. So if, if I'm, if this person is older, it's not because I don't know that there aren't younger, you know, more recent historians who've written on it. It's just that these people are the first to really talk about this. So I, cl I claim that space for them again. Um, and so, um, Obviously, that's a lot of work, but um, for me, it was important uh, to try to see, you know, what how long uh, this idea uh, was circulating. And as you know, it, I, in my epilogue, give reference to it circulating in the 1960s during the civil rights movement, and then just recently, unfortunately, uh, it's resurfaced again uh, in terms of race war and you know, black or white extermination um, um, in in the political climate today. I don't even know if people, the white supremacists in particular who are using it, really understand where it comes from. I doubt it. Just as you said, you didn't know anything about it. I didn't know anything about it. I was asking other historians, senior historians at the time, if they knew about extermination, if they knew of any black people talking about extermination, and no one knew anything about it. So, um, you know, so it, there's there's a need, right, to sort of if if you're willing to unpack it in a way uh, that makes it more understandable. So um, the prejudice is this: the scary, inherently black, uh, violent black man, for example, um, you know, comes from this really long history of, of racial violence um, that people may not in in the general population understand is steeped in. Um, the need to first keep people oppressed in enslavement and then later on to keep people oppressed economically so that they can't compete, um, you know, on an equal basis with, you know, other Americans. Um, and what that does to the black community, of course, is that makes them turn inward, create their own businesses, uh, support their own communities, 
um, while that exists, but it also exists alongside with violence that then ratchets up because people are successful. So then you are being killed because you're successful, not just because, you know, the, it, it's, a, it's a crazy history. So when we say, dare I say, make America great again, I question, when are we talking about exactly? Based on what I understand as a scholar, um, which, what, what part of America, which America are great again for who, right? Because my parents, you know, certainly uh, lived in a, a Jim Crow segregation space uh, in this country, as did their parents before them and their parents before them. And, you know, they were part of a larger black community. And, you know, we just need to understand that, that this is, we need to make a new America in, in living up to all of its promise um, and potential in my mind. And that comes from knowledge because knowledge is power. Absolutely. And, and that's why, to, to further your point, you know, it's why when I look back at uh, President Obama's speech um, to the Democratic Convention, I think it was 04 in Boston, um, when he said there's not a black white, black America, there's not a white America. Well, there, uh, I, I would say, you know, much love to you, President Obama. You know, I wish you were still here, man. Uh, but because of this particular history, we know that there has been a black and under white American other, because that's how a group can really say to make America great again. Because at one point or another, it was a great country for a particular group of people. Um, and I think that your history chronicles really that time that as America is quote unquote becoming great, that African-Americans free and enslaved, obviously they, you know, they were showing a mirror of what else is going on as well. You say mirror of mirror of well, the, what they yeah. couldn't have. Is that what you mean? Or well, well, more so to the point of um, you know, we're as as America is being great. You know, it's like black people are showing to you know really the world, especially in that contemporary in their contemporary time, and also in ours now that America. You may think America had been great at one particular time, but for African-Americans, they were not, you know, they were not within that greatness. They were, their, their bodies were the raw material that made things great. Right. That's true. And then from, in my framework, just the violence that you, and the trauma of that violence that you have to live through uh, and what that means to, you know, your capacity to comprehend, your capacity to focus, your capacity to concentrate, your capacity to dream Right. Um, to further yourself and your community. You know, we can't dis, uh, dismiss the fact that, you know, when you are living in those kinds of circumstances, it does affect the way in which you approach life. Um, and so what we have now is this this perceived um, that goes, you know, from the Monaghan report on forward, you know, perceived pathology within the black community. Some of it is very real, but a lot of it comes from the fact that we have a, a lot of depressed um, people, you know, in those communities that don't even know they're depressed, um, who, you know, have suffered, you know, somewhat of the effect, you know, of this marginalization. Um, and the difference between back in the 1920s and 30s is that I had my community around me to identify and to sort of uplift and uphold me up, right, in those moments. Um, versus now when people are 
a little more scattered. Um, and just in general, our community, you know, as Americans, period, you know, we're, we're less in touch, right, <laughs> um, with each other. And so that I think that that is, plays a, a part um, in some of the, the issues that, that, uh, that exist today, too. And, and it really is about the Black community, as they did then, you know, organizing and, and galvanizing themselves to resolve uh, the issues at hand. Um, so that's the other piece is that once you understand that really slavery is not about race, it's about money, it's about economics, it really isn't about the color of your skin, why you can white only, black only, water fountains, right? That it really, it serves an economic pur- uh, purpose for, for me to, to inscribe into law or custom uh, those practices. So once you really understand internally that it really is not about what shade I am or that my hair is different. It, it has nothing to do with that. It really is about what advantage do I get in excluding certain people over others. And may I say that Korean people have experienced that exclusion. Irish people have ex- experienced that. Jewish people, right, at different times have experienced that um, um, that sort of marginalization because of their ethnic or religious orientation uh, in this country. Um, but where we are now, or certainly in the post-1960s, is that, you know, we can cl- have certain groups claim uh, that they are white and sort of join, uh, join be on that side of things. Um, but I do that without the memory or knowing that, for example, Mexican uh, communities were um, destroyed in the Midwest and um, in the Southwest. I, I don't have that knowledge of that history, so I can ignore that. I can ignore the fact that Native people still do exist. They were not exterminated. <laughs> they actually do have communities. Um, and, so, and, and, and that history of what happened to them, we've acknowledged it formally federal in, as far as the federal government is concerned. But I say I would argue that in our text, in the history books, in the K through 12 materials, we still don't tell that story right. We still don't uh, center um, that experience. Um, it's almost as if to say um, that that it happened, but at the end of the day, look what was created, this great country, right? We're sorry it happened, but this is a great country. And, and this is what happened as a result of that. So the ends justify the means, but that's the very same argument that was used for enslavement or reopening the slave trade. The ends justify the means. These people will be exposed to Christianity. They will be ex- exposed to Western culture. And so therefore they will benefit from that exposure. And, you know, slavery serves what, quote unquote, a positive good. And so we need to be careful about, even today, about the way in which we sort of uh, wrestle with and, and tell some of these stories because we're still not telling it right and or still not telling it in the most empathetic way um, or in, in, in its most truthful way. Yes, and that is very true in, in, in all circles, whether it's even um, within the academy or in public history, um, in exhibit worlds. You know, because especially for the public historians, because those are um, the places where people 
get their history. So like I work at um, Boston African American National Historic Site up here and and I can't tell you how many times and even earlier this week, even I had a woman tell me that, well, Spain stopped their uh, Spain disengaged from the slave trade in the in the 15th and the 16th centuries. And I'm thinking to myself, hmm. And mind you, this woman is from Spain. And so I'm thinking, <laughs> uh, no, nah, that's that's not how this thing works. That, that's not that's not how this thing works. And so, um, you know, that's why, you know, as you, you're talking about trying to uh, uh, really promote justice work um, uh, as a possibly direct or indirect consequence of your work is really reclaiming what actually happened. Um, and so hopefully people pick this book up, A Curse Upon the Nation, so that people can know about how Dylan Roof, you know, the terrorist Dylan Roof was not authentic in his in his uh, in his efforts uh, back in the summer of 2015. Yeah, I mean, the the challenge or the really hurtful part of that for me is that the beauty of the internet is that you can find information if you choose to, right? And I mean, all you need is a computer basically. And that's not a nothing, but you know, libraries are invested in having, giving people who don't have computers access to that. Um, And people have phones. I've done plenty of research on my phone, read books on my phone, right? So, you know, so we're in a different time. So I guess where my concern is, is that younger people um, continue to, in some spaces, buy into the notion um, that this history is either A, not worth telling, um, or that we're harboring on the same old narrative over and over again, or that we had nothing to do with this. And, um, you know, so why are you bringing it up? And, um, you know, this is um, something that easily can be shut down, right, based on this, I don't want to hear this story, right, because it's the same old stuff, and I don't want to hear it. And one of the interesting things, I went to a conference in um, Toronto, Canada, a few years back, is that certain countries like Spain, like uh, Mexico, like France, you know, are, although acknowledging slavery and their participation in it, you know, want to sort of just do what I just said. They want to just move on and not focus on that, move forward, you know? And and I, I understand that desire, but that can only happen once we've really fully fleshed out and really have the real stories about what re- and, and reconcile ourselves with those real stories first. It can't, you can't not know and then just say, never mind, I don't want to know and just move forward because um, the result of that whether it's native communities, whether it's Mexican communities, whether it's women's history, um, Irish history, I mean, Korean history, Japanese history, you know, is that those people harbor, because they know, right, those histories they know through oral transmission. And, you know, what do you do with that information uh, when, you know, you are basically silenced? It's, it's not a healthy thing for those people, but it's also not healthy for the country because, you know, if someone knows that another person can express empathy for what their ancestors experienced, now be personal here, for example, I mean, my 
father and his father did fairly well. I mean, my grandfather was um, one of the first black principals in Baltimore. But at the same time, because of Jim Crow and racism and white supremacy, he always worked as a waiter at night. They were always pretty much starving. Um, And so, you know, the way in which you can be successful but still suffer, right, uh, as a family because of racism is very much relevant to today. And so what does that mean in terms of inherited um, uh, possibilities? And I'm not even want to say the word wealth, but uh, inherited opportunities, right? You know, my father wanted to go to law school, but he couldn't because he couldn't afford it. And the schools that might have been able to subsidize that would not let him in. This is the way that racism permeates families um, into today's times. So if you don't understand that, um, and it's not like anybody, my parents certainly were not angry black people by any stretch of the imagination. But at the same time, in my understanding of that history, it makes me sad. It makes me feel uh, how unfortunate it is that all this potential, forget about my family, you know, went, was not realized because of uh, these ideas that have no basis whatsoever other than. Um, an attempt to um, to keep uh, the wealth and and power, political power of this country, uh, amongst a certain group of, of people, um, and that that's unfortunate. And so, I need people uh, in reading this book, you know, to sort of look into their own family's history um, and their own community's history, and to sort to ask questions, to try to understand better, you know what what their story is because it's just not a simple you are poor or you know you are fill in the blank and then all these labels around it right and and when i think about this particular book one of the more poignant areas that you describe is nat turner right Nat Turner is someone who people have known about for a very long time, but in our contemporary moment, um, as a result of um, Nate Parker's recent film and and uh, and and I think it was a National Geographic uh, detailing the the potential uh, uh, bone fragments and and others from uh, from uh, from Nat Turner recently. You know he's been more in the mainstream. And so um, can you describe uh, your treatment of, of Nat Turner in this, in your uh, chapter for uh, the abridgment of hope after Nat Turner? Yes. Well, I mean, that's probably one of my favorite chapters. In, it's, in just, just let you know, it's one of mine as well. <laughs> <laughs> just, yeah, just, at, just for your information. Oh, thank you. Um, well, I, I think the thing is, is that there has been, um, I would say, a, a fair amount of treatment of the insurrection itself, right? Um, But I guess uh, what I found compelling was that then you have this rhetoric of extermination and race war, right, that um, comes to fore uh, that not only uh, people in Virginia know about, but people in Cincinnati, the race riots, uh, race riots, the riots of violence against Black people, you know, increase exponentially after that across the country, you know. And so what does that insurrection mean to black people, 
right? And I didn't say earlier, but um, I was uh, working at Norfolk State University before um, coming to Howard this year. Uh, and I had students whose families are still are related to him. Uh, and so in teaching Nat Turner in the class, I had this one student come up to me. He says, you know, my aunt has written this book. And so there, there's a whole breadth of people who have a certain um, understanding about that event. Uh, but what I found um, interesting and, uh, how can I say, it made me sad, but that's just because I'm a historian, I guess, that they did not feel uh, the freedom to assert their version of that, right? Uh, without threats of violence still to this day uh, being enacted upon them. And so um, for me, it was important to share from their perspective, um, not there as in the ancestors, but the people who um, were remembering writing about uh, the Nat Turner event, what that event meant to them, what the event meant to them, what, how they experienced the violence, the subsequent aftermath of it, which is really the focus of that chapter, but then also how they remembered him, right? And to just put him out there um, in, this, in the way that um, John Brown, for example, in, in the uh, liberal community is, is upheld as this uh, martyr um, for the country. And, um, you know, the question is, well, why isn't John, uh, why isn't uh, Nat Turner or Dan Marfisi, you know, the list is long, right? Um, uh, why are not these uh, freedom fighters held up as um, heroes of this country? And, and we are starting to see a change, right? And I think in the past 10 years, there's been more truth telling in books uh, than when I, you know, first started uh, my graduate uh, training which is just very refreshing. Uh, we've come out of a post, you know, a Cold War kind of mentality that says, you know, we have to only say good things about America or, you know, can't point to any flaws because then that'll be used against us. And so I think we're seeing the manifestation, you know, of that. Um, so Denmark Vesey, for example, has a statue. It's hard to find, in my opinion, but in uh, Charleston, in South Carolina, um, and work for, that's a result of people working for years to get that to happen. Uh, the Confederate monuments uh, being taken down, that some of the Confederate families as saying these things should be taken down. This is huge. I mean, we're in a really, really poignant moment as far as memory. So Nat Turner's memory, um, I wanted to sort of just, you know, um, bring forward as, you know, a possibility of sort of revisioning um, not just the agency that he expressed, but just the whole 360, him knowing what was at stake, the people around him knowing what's at stake, you know, which is more than just losing, um, but that whole communities might suffer brutality and violence and death. Uh, and that, you know, the entire country was concerned, the North was concerned about that as well. So it, it's a key moment um, that's reflected in the other chapter, the Virginia debates, which talks about um, the way in which those Virginia legislators are discussing uh, Nat Turner's rebellion and, and what they feel is at stake. And of course, you know, this whole idea of race war and a black or white extermination is being thrown down. And it's a transformational moment, um, not only for the black community, but also for white Southerners who then, you know, start to militarize up, as John Hope Franklin uh, argues, and, you know, really be 
uh, in a position should something like basically a Haitian revolution occur in the South um, and um, sort of makes for African-American people uh, to be strategic and look for other opportunities and wait for other opportunities. Because what people forget is the very same time Nat Turner's insurrection happens, you know, uh, Britain or, you know, shortly thereafter, you know, Britain abolishes slavery in England, you know, so, you know, in its colonies. So, you know, you have all, and they know all about that, right? All enslaved people know all about that stuff. So, and, you know, there's all this uh, abolitionism that's going on across the Atlantic world. Um, so violence is not necessarily the only method that's on the table, as was the case with the civil rights movement. Um, and so to give people credit at the time for, you know, being thinking and being very smart. Um, and so um, where I come away from this project is in feeling incredibly proud um, uh, of those people that were enslaved, how strong they were. It seems incredible to me how smart they were. Uh, I'm just so impressed with all of that. And, you know, that's hopefully also the message, you know, that I want to, and I do try to do in my classes to bring forward. This is not a history of shame. You know, this is not a history of, you know, people to be embarrassed about, you know. And I, and I think it's very unfortunate, um, especially if you're, uh, if you're a black uh, and you're in classrooms, especially that are not black, uh, majority or sometimes if at all, when the topic of slavery comes up, like for me, like I, I'll give a, a personal notation to this. Um, I cannot tell you how many times I felt so awkward or, or like uh, burdened, I guess might be the right word. When topics of slavery came up in, in class in high school or in uh, U.S. government class or in world history class. And I'm not going to say that people would like deliberately like look at me straight ahead because for one, I would always sit in the front of the class. So my back would always be to them for the most part. But the main issue for me was that it almost felt shameful, um, you know, that and then I almost feel shameful for feeling this way. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a kid. And so I remember there being times where, you know, slavery would come up as a topic and I'd kind of shrink because I felt, I guess, the burden of the history, but I also felt a little ashamed. And so I think that's, I, I definitely don't think that that's a, uh, that that's my only personal experience with that. And it sucks because if anything, I'm not saying white people should have shame for it as well, of course, but the shame should be on the nation for that to happen. Um, and as you talk about, this particular project is showing the greatness that enslaved people had. Because at the end of the day, as as black people in this nation and within the diaspora, we don't get to be here unless someone survived. And that survival is so key. And that's something that I'm proud of, that I come from that particular people obviously don't want it to happen. You don't want them to have to have seen and experienced that particular thing, but it happened. How do we promote justice work? And as historians and as scholars, that is our main field of endeavor of, uh, of hopefully trying to change people's understandings of 
the Genesis story of the nation, but also how the nation came to be and how it uh, matured. Um, you know, I use mature in quotes. Um, and so, <laughs> yeah, sometimes we're a little bit immature. Um, and so I think history is a way that we're very much immature, but there are historians like yourself who are out there trying to make that change. Yes, absolutely. And I, I do think that um, people who are not African-American or of, of color um, can approach and and should and would approach um, if they had an open mind this sort of new way of looking at this um, as a way of better understanding where we are now, right? I mean, this is the issue because if you don't understand what happened before, then you don't understand where we are now, right? And so the, the whole contest um, um, in West Virginia, for example, in Charlottesville, you know, very telling. I mean, it's not historically insignificant that it wasn't identifiable, you know, whites on one side and, you know, black people on the other side. I mean, you had a rainbow on that other side of people who were contesting um, those um, people who were advocating um, hate. And that's, that's a marker of just another marker, I would say, you know, of how powerful information is. Um, and so, um, you know, it, it is important for everybody to really understand this, but it's especially important for the black community to understand this as a, as a part of the healing process. Um, and anybody who thinks, well, you're not enslaved. So, so what now, you know, my parents didn't enslave you or my ancestors, I wasn't even here, whatever the narrative is, is being patently insensitive to the fact that it was not so long ago uh, that you um, had people, um, you know, who were being physically abused just because of the color of their skin. It was not so long ago. And, and even now we have that going on. Um, and, and a dis sort of, um, say, a disconnect between what the black community understands and, you know, what the nation understands. And, you know, maybe there's fuzziness on both sides, but there needs to be, you know, a coming together. And the only way that that can uh, really happen is if you understand that the police were emanate out of the patty rollers, if you understand that the police were part of the Jim Crow enforcement era, right? If you understand, you know, that the federal government and the police were part, you know, of putting down uh, the Black, Black Panther movement, that the Black Panther movement's right to bear arms was not to exert aggression, but rather in self-protection, uh, Second Amendment right. But no, Black men cannot have that Second Amendment right. Uh, it's viewed as something different. And, you know, we need to query ourselves. So why is it that Black men cannot o carry openly um, any sort of arms in this country and not be accosted as something, as a criminal? Right. When, you know, that's a Second Amendment. Right. And, you know, that's that's the reality in the black community. And we need to talk about that because th there's something inherently really wrong with that. Um, black, all black men and women are not criminals and they should have a Second Amendment right to carry arms and not be killed uh, because of it. And so this is the work that still needs to be done. Uh, but it comes from this longer history, this longer historical narrative. Uh, of racial violence uh, that was uh, justified and used for particular purposes. 
and and that's why everybody needs to to be able to get it right um, and and read uh, the truth and read the full story um, because then the real healing can begin and then the transformation can happen in terms of you know nobody should have to be afraid of driving and then having the police stop them nobody should be afraid should have to be afraid of that in this country as long as they're law-abiding citizens it should not be the case um, but the, historically that's not been the case um, and so you know we we need to unpack that a bit more my book is just doing a slice of it but I do think I'm trying to at least contribute to that sort of larger discourse um, about contemporary times um, so that we can you know sort of get to a different space here um, I think it's essential in order for this country uh, to not go backwards right in in terms of uh, racial um, harmony uh, harmony is probably not the word compatibility or or just the melting pot rainbow whatever you want to say the tapestry rather not the melting pot uh, the tapestry of America which is you know, many faceted in its cultures and its traditions. And, you know, this is what makes America such a, an interesting country. Um, but, you know, it has a long, deep history of how it got here um, that we need to understand in order to mo- move forward, I think, uh, in this uh, 21st century. Yeah, and and you talked about this being a, a small slice, and I, I would like to say it's, a, it's a, I think it's a pretty pretty strong, very very uh, very good slice of uh, sweet potato pie as I like to eat. Um, it, it, and I definitely devoured this book, and the the the, the actual chapter that I devoured the most, I would say, to keep that going, um, is your final chapter, um, really, and it was the one um, in in the or it's in the. In the, in the in the back actually um, about John Brown um, in one of your final chapters excuse me because to me your chapter um, John Brown's mistake the power of memory and the dangers of violence I think it's so I loved it so much because to me it's almost if I put like a like a, a postscript of that chapter it would be for the the guide for when white friends should listen to their black friends. Um, And so in many ways, you know, that's the first, when I read that chapter uh, through, I was like, man, come on, John Brown. You had all of your black friends telling you, hey man, you know, we're we're pretty much in tune with with that community that you're trying to help. I don't know about this, bro. (laughs) Right. Well, it's a, it's an, it's a moral tale on leadership. Right. Um, And so, um, if and certainly NGOs and any um, organization that's trying to help people, which is always a good thing. I'm very much into that. But you need to ask the people that you're trying to help what they need, right? Uh, they, you know, so so you might say, well, here, you know, what you really need is the democracy, and they are like, well, what we really need is potable water, right? We need clean water. That's what we really need, right? And so to be able to listen to the people that you're trying to help. Um, is 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 of all, it's very important, and so part of um, the work that I hoped that that chapter would do was to sort of disabuse this idea um, that you know w- black people were too oppressed to really get on board with with his plan, um, and, and instead rather that well you know I don't think that's a good plan, and I I some of those uh, Canadian. 
guys that he was talking to, I mean, they had been enslaved in the South, so they knew the system, right? Um, and so, you know, to be able to be respectful of, of um, the people that you're trying to help in, in your service to them um, is important. But of course, um, uh, there's a whole cadre of people who probably uh, went and if they read, read or read that chapter would be upset because John Brown in this country is a emblem of the moral compass that many people who, you know, are on the right side about slavery being a, an immoral institution, he represents them, right? And so it, it is a critique about him, but it's more a critique about um, or an exploration about the way in which, again, you have black people, abolitionists and formerly enslaved people, who have strategic concepts about how this may or may not work. They're thinking individuals um, who weigh in um, at some point or other um, and understand this. And, you know, to, so you need to respect them, not just because of John Brown, you know, uh, you know him, them t- talking to John Brown and saying this is not a great idea, but just to respect their, their brilliance, to respect their opinions and their thoughts about it. And, of course, the rhetoric of extermination and race war is what's at stake. Um, and also uh, another important aspect is, uh, you know, this whole notion about black manhood, you know, which, you know, probably a little bit earlier, but somewhere around that point really becomes under siege, uh, defining manhood. You know, what does it mean to be a man um, and, you know, the performance of manhood and to sort of write against and say, well, that might be your idea of manhood, but this is not what their idea of manhood was. And you need to respect that, right? That maybe other people have uh, different opinions about it. Um, And then, of course, their opinion about it is a very reasoned opinion because they know from the American Revolutionary era on that that fighting to the death for your liberty has never been anything that has been acknowledged or accepted for Black people to do, right? So, you know, there's a whole bifurcation about some of these these words and rhetorics that uh, that existed then and maybe even now that you know need to be unpacked a little more to understand better um what actually happened um and then of course again looking at the aftermath why are why are black people right in this right (laughs) and because they get they get the violence that Okay, he does get hung. He is hung. But the black, many black people who probably never even heard about John Brown were never even part of the the plan also get killed or whipped in, in 800 times or more. So, you know, this is this is a problem for me. Right. I, I don't want to suffer for your mistake. Right. Which is why I call it John Brown's mistake. And so that that needs to be acknowledged in our history as well. Um I believe, and I think the black community uh, believed that they would were not going to make the entire black community suffer for their actions unless they agreed to do that. And you know that's that's fair. That's I think how most people think of things, right? If I decide to take something on, you know, it's about me and whoever else agrees. But you know, just random people that are in the the broader community because the powers that be want to send a message, right? That you do this again, you know, here's what's going to happen to you and all the people around you. I mean, that's, that's tremendous weight. That's a tremendous 
pressure and responsibility. And it is on black men and women all the time as enslaved people and, of course, as freed people. And we need to reconcile with that as a part of their lived experience. Yes, and and I definitely believe that your book does exactly what you have really set out to do and set out to accomplish. Um, And so I definitely uh, appreciate you coming on the channel. And and so before we get to the end, um, you know, we always like to know with our with our scholars because um, we're we're forward thinking here, you know, about the possibility of even coming back. So, is there, um, you know, is, is there something else that you're working on now that this project is over? Uh, yeah, I'm. I don't want to say too much, but I'm. Oh, of course, of course, yeah. yeah, <laughs> I, yeah I'm yeah. doing another Atlantic World project uh, this time. Um, well, again, looking at. Um, Black people, in, formerly enslaved and free, um, and what their understanding is uh, about um, the eventual partitioning of Africa, colonizing of Africa. So, and then sort of the, the struggles that they experience in trying to, um, you know, navigate with, and then also what African people think about that as well. What African people think about African Americans you know, coming here, uh, coming to Africa and, you know, their observations about whites, um, potentially colonizing with the, with the idea of giving them different commerce, right. Different, uh, something else to sell other than their own people. Um, so that's, that's sort of the next big thing, um, that I'm working on. I will be one of the first potential to tell you this, but I am very much excited to hear uh, and to read whatever uh, that particular work uh, when it comes out. So I definitely hope that you can come back to New Books in African-American Studies to be able uh, to speak to us more, because if there's anything like a curse upon the nation, race, freedom and extermination in America and the Atlantic world, I already know that it's going to be exceptional. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me on. I would love to come back for sure. Very good. Very good. Well, on this very cold, very cold day for Boston, Massachusetts, uh, I am your host, Adam McNeil, uh, the host of New Books in African-American Studies. And we had the gracious opportunity to have Dr. K. Wright Lewis, Assistant Professor uh, of History at Howard University, the Mecca in Washington, D.C., and her great book, A Curse Upon the Nation, Race, Freedom, and Extermination in America and the Atlantic World. I hope that you buy it, and I hope that you read it, because it will be a book that um, is definitely one that is not only a page-turner, but it will make you really turn over certain thoughts in your mind about you know this concept of race war that is chronicled here. And so, thank you so much, Dr. K. Wright Lewis, and... Uh, Please tell the listeners, see you later. Thank you so much. See you soon.